Chapter 15, Reimagining Windows from the Chipset to the Experience. Section 101, The Chipset. Paul, you're not going to view this favorably. Steve Ballmer to Intel CEO Paul Odellini, as we described over the phone, our intent to offer Windows 8 on ARM processors. Welcome to Chapter 15. This is the final chapter of Hardcore Software. In this chapter, we are going to build and release Windows 8, reimagining Windows from the chipset to the experience. First up, the chipset. Then there will be sections on the platform and the experience. Following that, we'll release Windows to developers and then the public. Then a surprise release of Surface. There's a ton to cover. Many readers have lived through this. I'm definitely including a lot of detail, but chose not to break things up into smaller posts. There are subsection breaks though, enjoy. The first section covers the chipset work, moving Windows to the ARM, SOC, or SOC as I'll say. Before diving right in, I will quickly describe the team structure and calendar of events that will follow, both of which provide the structure to this final chapter while illustrating the scope of the effort. Windows is already a big project, but what we did with Windows 8 was to finally get back to Microsoft Roots and instead of merely a product release, we aim to make Windows 8 an industry release, certainly a product of all of Microsoft. From every aspect of the ecosystem and for each of our main customer segments, we worked to garner significant support and alignment with Windows 8. We built a vision with that in mind. We organized the team to build that vision. We created a calendar of public milestones to, to deliver it all to market. Organizing for Windows 8. We restructured the team in mid-2009, just before Windows 7 was generally available. It was a complete shift to a functional or discipline-oriented team for Windows and Windows Live services. Internet Explorer, with its unique position as both a platform and an application that also worked on older versions of Windows, remained a separate product unit. We organized about 6,000 full-time product development team members, about 2,000 software development engineers, into 55 different feature teams that had, on average, 35 software engineers and corresponding software test engineers and program managers. To scale, we created a new management layer, the directors. The way I thought of this was from a college hire perspective. A college hire in development, testing, or PM had a line or lead manager. Reporting to a group manager, the 55 teams, each with five to eight leads, who then reported to a director, each with four or seven teams, who reported to the VP of development, testing, or program management. We also had large teams for creating content and localizing both it and the product, product design and usability, product planning and research, the ecosystem, which had engineering as well as partnerships, marketing and communications, finance, and soon a hardware team. It was as flat and wide an organization as we could come up with. It was quite a long way from when we thought the Word team with 55 developers was the biggest team we'd ever have on one product, or the Microsoft Foundation classes with four developers, including the manager. The organization proved remarkably effective at what would surprise most people. It was incredibly agile to massive unknowns and learning along the way. What I said with Windows 7 was always the case with Windows 8, which is even as of this writing, I hear from people on a regular basis who talk about the work on the team being the best work of their careers and most fulfilling. That just means the world. The online version has a feature team chart with all the headcount and names of the teams that was current at least for a short time. Public disclosure and events. 
It is easy to imagine Windows 8 happening as a chronology from the initial planning before Windows 7 shipped through RTM. But that does not do justice to the scale of the effort and how much work happened in parallel. When we spoke of the chipset to the experience, each of those pillars was both a huge effort by Microsoft to engineer the product and a massive contribution from ecosystem partners to complete the delivery. Tammy Reller, email T. Reller, was the corporate vice president of marketing and finance for Windows and presented a slide at the end of our project at the All Hands Company meeting, where she outlined the major milestones for Windows 8. These external milestones are on top of the engineering-led milestones of M1, M2, M3, Beta, and RTM. There were 10 external events for Windows 8. Each a major outreach included a participation from partners, particularly representing the ecosystem and all aspects therein. That's a lot of events for one product. It was another era. While it helps to think of them happening serially, all of what will be described took place in parallel. These events helped to organize the sections that follow, chipset, platform, experience, and the ecosystem. In each of the following sections will follow various events, the internal workings and the public events that took place from January 2011 through the final product launch in October 2012. The technologists reading along can appreciate this approach as we traverse the project from layer to layer. Those with a marketing perspective will appreciate the journey segment by segment or channel by channel. The online version has that slide and has a picture of Tammy presenting it at the all hands meeting. We will dive into product details quite a bit, the highs and lows as they say. In a blog post on Windows 8, just after the consumer preview milestone, we described the goals we intended to achieve for the product experience. These were a distillation of the product vision as we iterated on and completed the scheduled feature set. Each of the sections that follow apply to some of these goals, but do try to keep them in mind as they guided the whole project. Fast and fluid, touch first, but not only touch, long battery life, grace and power of Windows 8 apps, live tiles make it personal, apps working together to save you time, roam your experience between PCs, and make your PC work like a device, not a computer. The chipset. The journey from Intel to also supporting ARM was one of the more extraordinary technical achievements in scope and execution by the reinvigorated Windows team. The implications of the work were on two levels. First, the immediate challenges were within the existing ecosystem, starting with Intel. Second, we were literally resetting the PC platform while in flight and doing so required a platform evangelism success on par with the original success Windows achieved in the late 1980s. I hated that throughout planning Windows 8 described in the previous section, right up through the team vision meeting, we were, or specifically I, was uncertain over whether we'd be able to make the right big and bold bet on ARM. It was so much work. The demo. On January 22nd, 2010, I walked over to Rich Nev's office, email R. Nev's, in the former COSDI buildings of the core Windows NT team. These buildings were built just after the apps campus and were where much of the Windows and server teams were housed. The kernel platform group, KPG, had just been at hard work, hard at work on the port to ARM for months. Calling it a port is a bit too small, as every major subsystem of Windows required deep architectural innovations. It was a refactoring, a major refactoring, of all the Windows code base. Much of it began under the guise of the previously mentioned MinWin. One week before the iPad announcement, Rich and the team asked me to stop by in their hallway 
for a look at what they'd been up to. These buildings were much larger and different in design than the old Wex buildings. The traditional Northwest wood construction had been replaced by exposed painted metal beams and glass in these more recent buildings. I made my way up to the conference room turned lab, where at least six members of the team waited anxiously to show me off, show off the progress. They were anxious because the progress was hard to believe. And frankly, we just hadn't had that many interactions as I'd only been their official manager for a short time. And in the Windows culture, executive visiting office was not all that typical and not usually a good thing. They showed me Windows 7 running natively on an Asus phone that was designed for Windows Mobile. Actual Windows 7. All of Windows 7. Windows Mobile at the time was built on a subset of the ancient 16-bit and 32-bit Windows code. They were running the modern Windows NT code base on a phone with an ARM chipset. It was nuts. It wasn't an old-school demo of the kernel or a command line, but the task manager, Solitaire, even the on-screen keyboard used for touch, and a command window. This was still the core OS team, after all. I was speechless. I was incredibly impressed with the team and the work they'd accomplished so early in the product cycle. We'd not even completed the vision. It was a huge boost to the confidence in our plans. While I insisted we remain opaque and secretive about the work as the full vision came together, this visit made it clear we were on our way. The online version has photos of those demos that I took at that, on that day. I took some photos with my Samsung Windows Mobile 6.5 phone. Two years later, I used them in a Windows on ARM blog post I'll describe below, intentionally leaving the original embedded timestamps of the afternoon of January 22, 2010, which the internet quickly discovered. That was just after the iPad launch, and for those who cared, it let them know we were working on tablets and ARM much longer than thought and were clearly serious. I know that hardly matters in the scheme of things, but it always made me feel better when we were accused of following in the wake of Apple. Even the best porting projects, moving one platform to another, in this case Intel to ARM, have a weird effect. Visible progress is quick, but the last 10% of the work takes 90% of the effort. There were always a risk of going from early demos to a product where it would become impossible to complete. The CoreOS team had the collective experience to know that. In this case, this was no parlor trick. Over the next year, the whole division and much of Microsoft will be doing its part to bring the full Windows experience to ARM chips. Rich sent a wonderful mail to the team after the demo. It was the start of something really great. The online version has that mail. The question, what would this mean as a product? The answer required a different perspective. What does ARM really mean? Windows engineering leadership, the leaders of the former COSDI organization, has significant experience in porting Windows, translating the code from one chipset to another, architecture to another, across numerous architectures. That is why this was not as outside of the box as many as perceived. In fact, Windows NT code was designed from the start to run on many chipsets. The team was never particularly enamored of the Intel architecture. Porting Windows from 32 to 64-bit chipsets was one of the most contentious times in the Intel-Microsoft relationship when the Windows team essentially sided with Intel rival AMD in the definition of 64-bit Windows. Those AMD 64 references in the source code drove Intel crazy. On the other hand, the team spent a good deal of energy porting to chipsets such as RISC and DEC Alpha 
that proved to have no business case, but yielded improvements in the architecture, making future ports easier. While porting Windows to ARM involved the whole team, the core OS kernel team drove the project and provided the deep technical leadership and expertise required to make it happen. This new cross-platform effort was a break from Intel of significant proportions, the implications of which were important to the future of Windows. It's worth noting the long history of cross-platform development at Microsoft. Many believe Microsoft was always wedded to Intel, and certainly from the advent of the IBM personal computer in 1981, that was obviously the case for the operating systems. As described, the apps and office teams had been committed to Macintosh heavily since that product was under development, and it wasn't until even 1997 that Macintosh apps were split from the main Windows Office development team. Before the IBM PC, the origins of Microsoft go back to providing basic and early apps such as Multiplan on a wide range of microcomputers running any number of operating systems. My own very first project was to develop the cross-platform libraries that emulated the Windows 16-bit APIs on early Macintosh to ease cross-platform development. That project ultimately led to the poorly received Word 6.0 for Mac and some valuable lessons for me. Microsoft seemed to have a good track record for knowing when to ebb and flow with platforms. For example, from the start, the original Windows CE and Windows Mobile efforts were all on non-Intel chipsets. The problem was we were now in astronomically deep with Intel, and the entire ecosystem of PC makers, development tools, peripherals, and a constellation of vendors and manufacturers, all of whom were integral to Wintel. It was not like the early 1990s, when it was viewed by the outside world as a minor side project for Windows NT to work on some fringe chipsets. Even if, and that was still not certain, we had all of Windows running on ARM chips, we still need to support for all the peripherals and devices, companies to make chips and computers, and software development tools and support up and down the stack of features. Microsoft had long ago become reliant on the ecosystem for much of this work. Over the past 10 years or so, we had increasingly included support within Windows itself for common peripherals such as keyboards, mice, some displays, various forms of storage, and mainstream printers. And with Windows 7, we started supporting some sensors and trackpads. The ecosystem, however, still contributed a lot of code required for a basic PC. That was an asset through Windows 7 and would continue with Windows 8 for Intel. For ARM, however, much more of this would need to just work, and Microsoft would need to deliver these capabilities. Cross-platform development is inherently seductive to technologists and how straightforward it should be. Highly desirable by business leaders who value the optionality and easily a requirement by enterprise customers who always insist on the diversity of their needs. But the odd thing about cross-platform development is that no single customer really cares because they generally have a single computer. But when it comes to the software, all it takes is one application that one customer needs and then the whole effort can fall apart. That is especially and overwhelmingly an issue for Windows, which took enormous pride and economic benefit from running nearly every program ever written for Windows, even on Windows 7. While the porting effort would continue, the issues above and just making Windows work were enormous. SOC was both a generic term and a specific term. For Windows 8, when speaking internally, SOC meant ARM. The chips manufactured to the specifications and designs by ARM Holdings, the then British company that created ARM. Unlike Intel, ARM designed chips but does not manufacture them. 
Companies license ARM designs and intellectual property, which they can customize, and then either manufacture the chips themselves or contract a manufacturer like TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor and Manufacturing Company. Texas Instruments, NVIDIA, and Qualcomm also license ARM and offer designs manufactured in-house or by other chip makers across Asia. Intel, as they often reminded me, held an ARM license. Apple licensed ARM designs and customized them. Intel had a SOC as well, known as Atom, the chips that were used in netbooks. Strictly speaking, the Atom SOC was a system on a chip in that the main components were indeed in one chip. Atom, however, came to rely on the existing PC architecture and was entirely compatible with all of existing Windows and peripherals. And so, as far as Windows was concerned, it was a standard Wintel PC. Whenever we talked about SOC, we included Intel. Though from product and engineering perspectives, Intel's efforts to make a SOC competitive with ARM was a longer-term goal, one of which Intel never achieved, unfortunately. We called Windows running on ARM SOCs WOA, Windows on ARM. In July 2010, Microsoft also became an ARM licensee, just like Intel and all the mobile phone companies. The online version has a screenshot of the ARM press release. The differences between ARM SOC and Intel SOC gets to the heart of a computer science debate and innovation to the 1980s, one of the biggest topics in systems groups when I was in graduate school. ARM chips at the most basic level were designed to be simple and leave the complexity to the software layer with the belief that simplicity would ultimately yield better performance, power management, and lower cost. They were rooted in the ideas of reduced instruction set computing, risk. The Intel SOC was rooted in more of the idea that chips would continue to increase in transistors, doubling the transistor count every two years, according to Intel founder Gordon Moore. And the best use of that was to enable chips to do more complex operations at the hardware level. Intel and AMD chips in general were known as complex instruction set computing, CISC. And even the Intel SOC was technically a CISC. There was much more to this overly simplistic explanation or ferocious debate, and I offer two references in the footnote. The WOA efforts gave the Core OS team a chance to re-architect major subsystems of Windows to perform better, manage power better for longer battery life, support fanless devices, consume less memory, and be more secure. A significant part of the value proposition for porting to ARM was that Windows would make step function improvements in these areas. The vision for behaving much more like a consumer electronics device depended on the improvements to Windows that could only be done on ARM. The basics of connectivity, disk storage, and memory were re-architected as well, using technologies required by ARM designs, technology that took much less physical space because there were no sockets, plugs, or cables, as a laptop might have, and everything was packaged on one circuit board. In addition, the team engineered support for a whole set of new peripherals that PCs never had, like a compass or an accelerometer. That's how a device knows when it's rotated. This work also applied to Intel-based PCs, which was kind of cool, even though few, if any, devices would gain these peripherals anytime soon. Software engineers love a good porting project. Ports are finite, measurable, and every day is a day of progress, mostly. Porting Windows to ARM was a massive effort, but also a good deal of fun for the team. They built out a whole new lab and set of tools to test WOA hardware. They designed and built ARM motherboards that had enough connectors to diagnose performance and quality, as well as to manage installing new builds of software and test at high volumes. 
At one point, we had hundreds of WOA circuit boards racked and stacked in the lab. The online version has a photo of that lab rack. ARM strategy goals. The easiest product strategy would have been to simply complete the work and offer WOA as a unique Windows product, much like Windows for RISC or Alpha, or even 32-bit or 64-bit choices PC OEMs could make. As with any chipset, Microsoft would also provide tools so that existing Windows software could easily target the new chipset. At the highest level, such a port seemed like a great idea. As if by magic, Windows would gain all the attributes of ARM, such as always-on mobile connectivity, cheaper components, extended battery life, fanless devices, and so on, plus all of the existing benefits of Windows, such as Office, choice of hardware for many vendors, and even the vast library of existing, existing software. Oh, if only magic were possible. As it turned out, every constituency in the PC ecosystem had a different rationale for wanting WOA and a different view of what WOA could mean and deliver. Our job was to navigate what amounted to conflicting customer needs and desires. As one could easily imagine, the various perspectives collided and meant there would be trade-offs that made each constituency unhappy in different ways. Our intent was to deliver on the promises of ARM but there was difficulty in delivering those along with the plus for three important reasons. First, ARM devices were not architected like x86 devices. Normally, one could pop a DVD in a drive and install Windows. ARM devices, like smartphones and tablets, are built as a complete package of hardware and software. There are no separate operating systems for ARM devices due to the nature of ARM. The customization and choices made by device makers define unique devices. They then do the work in the OS to make the device and OS together. Apple did this with the iPhone and the iPod, and most recently, the iPad. Smartphones from Nokia, Samsung, LG, and so on, all do this work, whether designing for Android, Symbian, or some other variant of an OS. For Microsoft to deliver WOA as a product, we would have to specify the ARM platform to a great degree. That was different than the OEMs might have hoped for, as they would have liked to source chipsets and other components from a variety of suppliers while treating Windows as just another component. ARM from any supplier was already cheaper than Intel, a major plus for OEMs. If one were to take a cynical perspective, OEMs simply wanted ARM as a point of leverage to negotiate with Intel over the price of x86 chipsets. For too long, Intel had held all the cards, and even with AMD, it seemed like there was little leverage. Additionally, with multiple suppliers of ARM chipsets, the OEMs saw an opportunity to negotiate even better terms by competitive sourcing for just ARM. Well, this sounds awesome. It would have been unimaginably complex to deliver WOA such that the choices of what hardware it would work on would be made by many independent OEMs. WOA hardware needed to be, be determined at the start of the project. The Android ecosystem took such an approach, and by and large, customers are left with devices to wither without updates and security fixes, simply because the complexity of delivering them across the diversity of devices is overwhelming. Second, from an end-user perspective, WOA PCs should behave better, not just differently, than x86 PCs. Windows NT ran on several other chipsets, but all, all but x86 and x64 failed because there was no value proposition unique relative to mass market chips. Software makers did not see the volume that would drive them to spend energy porting their own software, while PC makers did not see unique software to justify switching their supply chain. Our work on WOA was rooted in creating a unique value proposition. 
This was a lesson from the early support in Windows for different chipsets. Third, the assumptions built into the Wintel model of hardware and software just needed to be revisited. The Wintel PC assumed a wide open hardware platform where anything could be inserted, plugged, soldered, or connected to a PC or laptop, and along with that, install any necessary software to make a peripheral function. The ability of any hardware to require device drivers or kernel mode software was the bane of the existence of Windows already, and the requirement that Windows accept all such software was already a recipe for continued challenges with security, reliability, and battery life. Everyone loves the flexibility, but the overall cost had become an inexcusable burden as PC uses expanded to a billion people. Creating a next-generation platform with this extensibility from the start would bring these weaknesses to WOA. Why bring everything bad about a Wintel PC to this new hardware platform while at the same time reducing the potential to surface the good? This constraint creates a significant break from the way OEMs and customers thought of a PC. Whether Windows wanted it or not, computing devices were moving from a break open the case and do whatever needs to be done to a sealed case design, as is common with most consumer electronics. Woe was not just an alternative chipset for Windows the way we saw 64-bits, RISC, or Alpha, but an entirely new way to think about building a computer platform. Taking a step back, we wanted to reimagine what Windows could be. We knew we would always have x86 PCs, and those would always support the existing body of applications, hardware, peripherals, software, and the ecosystem that provided them. There was little life left in the PC ecosystem. The industry's hardware innovation cycle was firmly planted in mobile. Radios, sensors, cameras, rapidly improving processors, memory, storage, and more. The PC ecosystem was essentially in legacy support mode. Vendors doing what they could to squeeze out costs and continue to win existing business while trying to break in to the high-volume mobile space. Reading this today, it is abundantly clear how the world has changed. Nearly all the innovation that expanded beyond memory storage and CPU happened and continues on mobile platforms. By and large, innovations in PC hardware now feed off what happens in mobile, so long as the suppliers of both components and software can do the work for PCs. Nearly all organic PC innovation is driven by the market for mega-scale data center computers, which are very low volume and very high price. Quite simply, the market size for PCs is one-fifth as large as the smartphone market in unit sales. PCs, while twice the size of the tablet market, do not benefit from smartphone innovations, as do tablets. The PC, however, was and remains woefully deficient in the very attributes that were so exciting with the latest smartphones. The list of smartphone attributes reads somewhat like a list of all the shortcomings of laptops. Long battery life, always connected to the network, mobile network connectivity, instant resume from standby, passive cooling, consistent performance no matter how many apps are installed, high quality cameras, GPS, motion sensors, light sensors, identity sensors, and more. When summed this up, we summed this up as consumer electronics level of experience maintained over time. An example of the contrast between ARM architecture and x86 architecture is the way an iPhone works relative to low power standby mode, something everyone knows has been historically one of the flakier aspects of a PC. Phones made people accustomed to consumer electronics devices with very long standby and all day battery life while remaining connected to the network and able to light up to full use instantly when a new message arrives. By contrast, 
even in 2022, people walk around balancing unfolded Windows laptops out of worry of losing work should the PC fail to resume successfully from a closed lid and standby. The original iPad had 30 days of standby and 10 hours of all-day usage. During that entire time, the product continued to maintain a connection to the network to receive email, messages, notifications, and more. We take for granted the ability for a device to work instantly when we need it and to quickly blank the screen and dramatically reduce power consumption when we don't, reliably and without question. Building this type of feature takes work at every single layer of the system, from the chipset up through the OS and the developer platform to the apps. It doesn't just work because of a change in chipsets. In the case of Windows, the variation across the ecosystem makes this even more intractable when considering what might be plugged into the PC or what components and supporting code the OEM might have chosen to use. Our goal was to infuse Windows with these attributes so that the new Windows 8 devices and future devices could have the qualities of a smartphone and tablets that consumers were expecting. We did not set out to have lower priced devices, to find competitive leverage against Intel, to make better netbooks, or to simply have more choices to do exactly what Windows already did perfectly well within Windows 7. The job of engaging the OEMs to achieve these goals was, as we say in Microsoft, non-trivial. Steve and Steven call Intel. We had to break the news to Intel that we were working on moving Windows to their architectural rival the one that had beat out Intel for the iPhone just after the success of winning Apple as an Intel customer for the Mac. We planned on an event build as a technology demonstration at the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, in 2011. This was earth-shattering, geopolitically significant news. Some would see it as essentially a fracture of the Wintel relationship, even though in practice, we were just expanding Windows as we'd always done, just as Intel supported Linux. It would be like McDonald's breaking up with Coca-Cola to switch to Pepsi, some thought. Though, more realistically, simply adding Pepsi and offering choice. An entire industry was built on the Wintel partnership. For our part, we were confident that for the foreseeable future, we would not only be supporting, but actively building Windows 8 for x86 devices. That's why this was different than the Osborne effect. It's also why Apple had a much easier time in their past chip transitions, because they were fully moving to the latest chips. We indeed plan to run with both x86 and ARM at the same time and recognized how difficult this might be. In mid-December 2010, as we prepared for CES in January, we huddled around the low coffee table in Steve B's office, eyes fixed on the polycom, and Steve called Intel CEO Paul Odolini. At Intel, his entire career, Paul joined the company in 1974 straight out of graduate school He rose through the ranks to become Intel's first non-engineer CEO, a position he held for more than five years. Paul was always polite and gracious in our meetings, which made things even more difficult. Our investment in ARM would prove a significant strain in the near term. The online version has a photo of a polycom just to make you feel what it was like. Steve took the lead, of course. This was not a technical conversation, but about the partnership. He said to Paul, we had some news. Paul, he continued, slowly and deliberately, you're not going to view this favorably. Steve told Paul we'd made the decision that in addition to Intel, we would target ARM chips with the next release of Windows and that we'd be doing technology demonstration at CES in January 2011, just a few weeks away. We would talk about Windows supporting for ARM without doing a full Windows 8 reveal. 
Steve reiterated that Intel would continue to be our primary target and that we planned on the vast majority of PCs to be Intel-based PCs. I chimed in with some words about ARM being the focus for SOC efforts for Windows and that Intel's SOC was also a target. Our announcement would be about SOC, not exclusively ARM, and we would feature Intel SOC products. That would scarcely soften the news. Paul was quiet for a bit. Steve had delivered the news perfectly. Steve and I kept looking at each other, waiting for a response. Seconds seemed like minutes. Finally, we got one. At first, Paul said Intel SOC would be more competitive, and we didn't even have to do the work to support ARM. Then he asked two questions. Would ARM chips be executing any Intel instructions? In other words, would ARM be emulating Intel, thus making it compatible with Intel? There might have been several reasons he wanted to know this, but I would imagine protecting Intel's intellectual property was top of mind with this question. It was irrelevant because we had no intention of trying to achieve Intel compatibility. It would not have worked given the state of the art and our strategy. Intel was rather protective of attempts to emulate or reverse engineer their x86 instruction set, and they remained sensitive to how Microsoft reduced their influence during the transition to 64 bits. Second, Paul asked about Office and what our plans were there. He immediately knew that Office was the most strategic product for Microsoft on traditional PCs. And he also knew that if Office were part of the equation, then software vendors would be taking a lead from Microsoft. We, of course, knew this as well. Steve said we didn't have to answer, uh, have an answer yet as we were still working on our plans for Office. This was true, and in fact, the plans for Office were still an internal issue and a super frustrating one for me. I had the role to close out the call, outlining precisely how we planned to show Intel SOC at the event and how we'd be showing existing Windows applications on the Intel SOC as a key differentiator of Intel's efforts. He seemed pleased with that and offered to help us. We always included the Intel SOC, the Atom product, even though it lacked many of the qualities we saw in ARM-based chipsets. Days later, I flew to Intel's headquarters and visited with David Dottie Perlmutter, leader of the Intel Architecture Group, essentially Intel's core chip business and longtime Intel employee and long-rumored CEO successor to Paul, thus making us rumor mill equivalents. Dottie was always fantastic to work with as we could bond over challenges we each faced in our efforts while recognizing the overall complexity of the equation. We had a cordial meeting. He offered up many technical issues we might face, pointing out the fact that Intel had deep knowledge of ARM as one of the earliest licensees of the architecture. He too was focused on application compatibility, while he'd been briefed, was satisfied to hear everything again firsthand. In many ways, the call and visit were the culmination of both supreme technical work on the team and of the most incredibly difficult product choice I ever had to communicate. The relationship between Intel and Microsoft formed a cornerstone of the PC era, a partnership and set of personal relationships that compared to any in business history. The relationship always had some tension, the kind of tension seen between hardware and software since the start of computing. My feelings alternated between betraying a business partner and relief that we could move computing forward depending, depending on the moment. Ultimately, for Microsoft to be relevant in operating systems, it needed to rely on new hardware. That said, Intel had similar feelings and simply executed them more openly. For Intel to be relevant, it needed to, a much more concerted effort to woo our competitors, Linux in the data center, Apple and PCs. Going way back to my very first meeting with Intel, with Bill G, Andy Grove, Gordon Moore, and others, was the one where the main topic of conversation was how openly and aggressively Intel was courting Java developers. 
This was a time when Microsoft viewed Java as a cross-platform tool, as competitive to Windows, while Intel just viewed it as a slow platform that would better fit from faster processors. Over the coming months, Intel would aggressively counter our work on ARM. Public statements were clear and pointed, and one could only imagine how the conversations went with their partners in private. Business can be brutally competitive. From CES through the release, Intel was on the field battling against Windows on ARM. They had to. We expected them to. Still, it was not helpful. In hindsight, I might even suggest they were successful in convincing OEMs of their perceived downsides of ARM. All is fair in business, even with the best of partnerships. It was Andy Grove himself who used the term coopetition in his thoughts on the industry. The online version has a story about Intel talking about ARM that shows how candid they were. One reaction from Intel was to further emphasize that Intel chips supported a variety of operating systems. In one slide we kept seeing pop up at Intel events, the company emphasized this by putting the Windows logo in a tiny box with Google and Mego, a Linux distribution, with the title, Unveiling Oak Trail, Building Upon the Low Power Moorestown Platform to Add OS Port of Choice to Tablets and Netbooks. Another variant of the slide included every operating system used in the time, including Apple, putting Windows on par with these offerings and again using the phrase port of choice. Definitely rubbed me the wrong way. All is fair in this type of competition. Honest. Once Intel was fully briefed, we were ready to head to CES, where Steve B. would lead the show with a keynote. We chose to have a separate event with just the press and our ARM partners to be able to offer Q&A and to be able to see, for them to see the demonstrations in a smaller venue. CES 2011 Technology Demonstration There was no way around it, but the coverage of Windows embracing ARM would be seen through the lens of the implications for the Wintel partnership. Additionally, it would be seen as a failure for Wintel to secure a market position in tablets, the hugest of huge new categories created by Apple and now overrun with Android. This was the kind of event we had to hold after the stock market closed because some would overreact and think of a technology demonstration as tradable news. Mike Angiulo, Mike Ange, and the ecosystem team created a showcase for the technology and partners behind ARM. This was the kind of event where the primary goal is to prove the partners that we are committed to the work and by making a public statement. We would work in the background to gain enough support so the partners at least agreed to be named, which would be an accomplishment. We're on stage, but the success of the event looks like a slide with all the partner logos, which the team delivered. The team built out all the demonstrations, which were to put it kindly, in a very fragile state. This is one of those big tables of devices on display where we couldn't even have backups because there was literally only one of each device, often a test breadboard complete with wires hanging off of it. Amazing work. The online version has a photo of Mike with the table of devices. We began, we began by showing how hardware on SOC and ARM mobile platforms had improved. I put up a chart showing how Windows had doubled system requirements every release from Windows 3.1 twice as much disk space, and twice as much memory from 1992 to 2006. The takeaway was that phones and PCs had converged in hardware capabilities, and phone hardware was improving faster. In other words, while Windows had finally leveled off in hardware specs, smartphones basically caught up to PCs and capabilities. The online version has a slide which is of me presenting convergence of devices, as well as some hardware requirement slides. As we worked through the computers running Windows on ARM, we showed a number of significant innovations, things that did not work on phones or tablets yet. Mike showed ARM devices using USB storage, printing, and connecting to external displays. 
Well, these were mundane tasks for a PC. They were the kinds of basic features not supported on the iPad or Android tablets. We were tapping into the breadth of capabilities of Windows. SOC was the driver for the innovation, bringing along with it the benefits as, such as integration of many peripherals not available on PCs. Lower power consumption, no loud fans to cool the chips, and much smaller devices. By showing off SOC devices running Windows and Office, complete with printing, USB storage, and good graphics, we made it incredibly clear that Microsoft was dedicated to bringing Windows and ARM to market. Mike Ange planned and executed the whole show, including working with his team and aligning partners. To say it was masterful in the context of a wild announcement no one was expecting would be an understatement. The online version includes that key CES partnership slide. No press cover- the press coverage of the event was worldwide and spanned the technology and business news. As expected, there was focus on the implications for Intel. The coverage was anchored by the huge showing of Android tablets at CES and the success in the first months of the iPad. Ina Freed, reporting for All Things Digital, had a detailed live blog of the event covering minute by minute what was shown. Freed also had a follow-up story that ran with the headline, Windows on ARM is no knee-jerk move, pointing out how long the work had been underway. The online version has the story by Ina. Later in the evening, Steve B. held his much broader keynote, including Xbox, Windows Phone, and a nod to SOC, where he said, whatever device you use, Windows will be there. The online version has uh, stories about Steve Ballmer and also a story, the stories that were appeared on TechMeme. Still, CES 2011 had been rather challenging or even lackluster for Microsoft. The main keynote the company delivered was primarily about the 2010 wave of products. Xbox was making big news with Kinect, but there was a dearth of Kinect-enabled games. Android totally dominated phones and pushed aside what presence Windows Phone 7 could muster just months after a launch. Android's open-source strategy of free OS software and anything-goes hardware drove a broad range of low-cost smartphones and connected devices of all types. Plus, we were approaching two years since Windows 7, and there were still no laptops to compete with the MacBook Air, which had already been updated. The PC OEMs were not showing many Windows 7 tablets or touch PCs. Instead, they had turned their focus to Android tablets. One of the biggest changes in the computing device landscape was underway, and one that goes largely unnoticed. While there was attention was paid to the software battle for computers, meaning personal computers, phones, and now tablets, between Microsoft, Apple, and now Google, there was also a battle across the manufacturers of devices. There was a changing of the guard underway in making computers as the leaders of the PC era, such as HP, Dell, and Lenovo, were losing to the new makers of phones from Apple, Samsung, HTC, and a host of new manufacturers and ODMs in China that never made PCs. The tech blog BGR tracked over 100 different tablets debuting at CES 2011, and while some traditional PC makers were on the list, they were overwhelmed by manufacturers mostly new to computing. The online version has that list of over 100 tablets from BGR. From my vantage point, this only raised the urgency of Windows 8, specifically the pressure to deliver a new PC experience. Noteworthy was the increasingly gloomy PC sales numbers that continued to roll out. Those sales numbers were announced just after CES. Smartphones surpassed PCs and units sold in the first quarter of 2011. PC sales declined almost 2% year over year. Analysts who predicted almost 500 million PCs were declaring the death of the PC and that we had passed peak PC. PCs, they reported, had been supplanted by tablets like the iPad. 
The online version has a story about PC sales peaking. Android tablets had ridden from hack prototypes a year earlier to dominating the show floor, even as the spirit of Apple dominated CES. Google was releasing Android builds at a furious and incomprehensible pace. Even support for tablet-sized screens was uncertain, as the cleverly named releases on the roadmap were added and features moved from one release to another. From Android 2.3 Gingerbread, just released before CES but unavailable on tablets, to Android 3.0 Honeycomb, which forked the code to support tablets only to become Android 4.0, to Android 2.4 Ice Cream Sandwich, and more. Something like that. No one really could keep track. The online version has a story about Android releases. For the next year, behind the scenes, we continued to develop WoWo with OEMs. It was a constant push and pull with OEMs. The OEMs had challenges reconciling their conflicting goals. They wanted ultra-cheap, low-priced, mass-scale devices that could utilize their supply chains. We were hoping the OEMs would join us in a new category of device, a more capable tablet. Engaging OEMs. Mike Ange's PC ecosystem team developed a strategy to engage the OEMs on WOA projects that at once constrained the variations in hardware WOA supported while also enabling OEMs to define unique innovations they brought to market. The OEMs were not happy with the constraints, to say the least. Assumptions from just about every ecosystem constituent would be that Windows would do the work to implement Windows on ARM, and the resulting product would maintain all the properties of x86-based Windows. OEMs would then build PCs out of ARM or x86 as they saw fit. New ARM-based PCs would presumably have all the software capabilities and compatibility of x86 Windows, plus all the positive properties of ARM, such as appropriate for small tablets, low cost, and long battery life. As nice as this sounds, such an end state was impossible. Investments in ARM would only make sense if the ecosystem could rally around a new value proposition. We did not need another netbook. We certainly did not need the confusion of two different chipsets that did the same thing, only slightly differently, in a seemingly random set of ways. It was going to be remarkably difficult, no matter how we approached the situation. On the one hand, building the first WoWA devices would be technically demanding and require significant upfront commitment from all parties. At the same time, the strategy for WoWA would not immediately resonate with OEMs who traditionally think first about margins, assortment, segmentation, and minimizing investment to achieve those given their margin structure. We saw WoWA as a new type of intellectual property from Microsoft with a new go-to-market. Such thinking was not exactly welcomed by our established partners and best customers. It was the fact that these were our best customers that made this even more difficult. The plan involved working with the core OS team to define ARM hardware choices that worked with Windows, defining the specifications for hardware, including the chipset maker and all the associated peripherals. Essentially, we defined three different ARM-based platforms, each unique in what it could provide consumers. Mike and team worked closely with three ARM chip makers, each viewed as a primary partner for WOA, including Qualcomm, Texas Instruments, and NVIDIA. For example, Qualcomm offered great connectivity in their ARM products. Texas Instruments had an array of sensors and a long history of low-powered ARM devices. The NVIDIA Tegra platform had the best-performing graphics, expected given their expertise. Within each platform, there was flexibility. And deciding the platforms, we engaged OEMs to include their ideas as well. For each platform, we determined if there was an OEM interested in building a PC and working with them on the specifics of the PC, determining if it was to be a laptop, convertible, or a slate form factor, what size screen, collection of external connectors, and so on. The strategy was designed to provide a lineup of ARM devices from the day we launched Windows 8, 
while at the same time avoiding the customer confusion and channel complexity that might result from having essentially identical devices from different OEMs. Where Intel aimed for volume from roughly identical netbooks, we aim to have higher quality and differentiated device. The worry that led us to this approach was that OEMs would simply repackage netbooks with their low quality screens, thick plastic cases, and commodity manufacturing to represent WOA innovation. Low price and keyboardless represented their default point of view when it came to ARM. Since we had a new platform and surmised that investment would be relatively minimal, we suspected OEMs would want to reuse as much of an existing design as possible. But we wanted WOA to stand for a reimagined, higher quality and modern Windows, not a cheaper, less capable subset. OEMs were receptive to the plan, even if they did not see the problems with Windows we wished to address as acutely as we did. Still, they immediately saw ARM as an opportunity to cut Intel out of the equation. They wanted to know how much cheaper Windows was relative to Intel Windows. In other words, their perspective was immediately focused on providing even lower-priced PCs. Our concerns were realized early, but at least remained predictable. There was immediate pushback over the constraints within the system. The limits in their flexibility and requirements were viewed as a sign of distrust. Much to our surprise, however, the OEM seemed more circumspect when it came to our own execution. Based on years of experience, they had many reasons to doubt we would even deliver, which was, granted, relatively fair. While they never directly stated it, it was clear from their body language that some believed maybe we had ulterior motives for WOA. Perhaps it was to gain leverage over Intel or something. I found this frustrating, as we only wanted to deliver on a new Windows value proposition. Given our recent history, their feelings and doubts were understandable. Over the course of executing WOA, we'd have many ups and downs, delivering multiple devices involving multiple silicon partners working with multiple OEMs. We saw firsthand the differences in how partners approached in or believed in the opportunity and how their organizations reacted to what we certainly believed was an attempt at building our own disruptive innovation. Qualcomm, for example, was highly tuned to running experiments with OEMs. That was great. At the same time, their process relied on essentially sizing the market early on and introducing measured involvement based on their perceived run rate of a device. They also had their own partner ecosystem and were anxious to reward good partners with a WOA opportunity, even if that partner didn't have a deep interest in bringing a device to market. Windows Phone already partnered with Qualcomm, which proved to send a mixed message about predicted unit volumes. Our own process for PCs paired one OEM with Qualcomm, whereas Windows Phone had many OEMs. Qualcomm was more interested in working with many OEMs. These are just some of the complexities that come from three or more deca-billion-dollar companies partnering. We were all used to it, even if it wasn't great. At the other end of the spectrum was NVIDIA. At NVIDIA, Jensen Huang, the founder and CEO, took a personal interest at every step, while he certainly didn't need to, he continued to prove while he is one of the industry's most visionary and uncompromising innovators. While walking the show floor of CES in 2011, Jensen saw me and pulled me into the NVIDIA booth to express his personal excitement. He said, we're going to nail this partnership and create a whole new category of device. He was excited and his enthusiasm was infectious. And frankly, it was welcome. The NVIDIA booth was also jam-packed with their best-of-show Tegra products used in a variety of devices. ZDNet, in their CES Winners and Losers roundup, went as far as to suggest NVIDIA looks like it could become the Intel of the next great wave of computing. 
Everything about working with NVIDIA was impressive, including the technology. In that same CES roundup, ZDNet said of loser Microsoft, this is beginning to sound like a broken record, but I'm still waiting to hear any hint of Microsoft's vision of where it sees the computing world headed in the decade ahead and how Microsoft plans to take us there. 8,617 words describing WOA. In February 2012, a year after the CES announcement, we published Building Windows 8 for the ARM processor on our Building Windows 8 blog, B8. We'd already unveiled the Windows 8 user experience and held the first developer conference, but work on ARM, particularly the new hardware, took more time. It was time to be clear with the market with about six months to go before RTM. 8,617 words. That's what it took to describe the technology under the hood to reimagine Windows for the SOC chipset, primarily ARM. The post was so long and overwhelming that among the PC press, it remains a meme for lengthy writing and cemented my own personal reputation as a writer of many words, as if the hundreds of thousands of words herein were not enough. The post was almost three years in the making when we consider when the work initially began. The detail provided was intentionally overwhelming. In sticking with the promise and deliver, what we communicated were our commitments and what we would deliver. The post covered working with partners, apps for ARM computers, the hardcore details of re-architecting Windows for ARM, and even how we tested WOA, and then finally, how WOA PCs would make it to market. There were still questions. Yikes. It's easy to say that was my fault for not providing enough information, but it would be more reasonable to say that this is just part of the difficulty of changing assumptions of a massive market that was decades of precedent. The online version has the tech meme of that day. The tech blogs were anxious for information. At CES 2012, we provided little by way of update, which was probably a tactical error given it was the announcement at the previous CES. This led to all the coverage taking the tone of, finally. There were over three dozen stories anchored off the B8 post listed on the industry site TechMeme. The comments and questions ran the gamut. There's also an online version of a Wall Street Journal story that has a funny headline, WOA, that's a lot of words. A non-text, Andrew Cunningham, however, highlighted the main news items as effectively as any outlet using their in-depth analysis as we'd come to expect. Up front, there was, finally, clarity on the notion that WOA would come to market differently than traditional Windows for x86 processors, recognizing what most had previously assumed but was not the case. Cunningham wrote, Up until now, we've operated under the assumption that a new version of Windows called Windows 8 would be released this year, and that would run on both x86, 32-bit, and 64-bit. Throughout this article, I'll use x86-bit to refer to both architectures. And ARM processors. Sanofsky's post makes it clear that the ARM version of Windows, officially referred to as Windows on ARM, WOA, is considered to be a separate product from Windows 8. The same way that products like Windows Server and Windows Embedded share a foundation with, but are distinct from, Windows 7. Windows on ARM has a high degree of commonality and a very significant amount of shared code with Windows 8. Much of the user's interaction with the OS will be the same on either platform, and much of the underlying technology we've seen in our Windows 8 coverage so far will be present in both versions, but they're distinct products that will be treated differently by Microsoft. Then came the two main questions that were answered, but now the debate would really begin in earnest. First, to the question of the desktop. That is, the traditional Windows desktop interface and applications requiring a mouse such as versus touch. In the next posts, I will describe the new touch interface and application model. 
For, but for now, all one needs to know is that new applications were called Metro or Metro style, and the name of the API layer was known as WinRT. Important to this context is that the press and most technologists viewed tablets as entirely separate from PCs and the future. Even Steve Jobs had made that point. As we will see, we did not design the product to have that distinction. The article continued, One of the biggest recurring questions I've seen about Windows on ARM is whether the standard Windows desktop would be available for use on those devices as it will be on standard Windows 8 machines. The answer is yes, it definitely will be. The desktop can be invoked from the start screen, and once there, users can perform standard Windows Explorer operations, launch the desktop version of Internet Explorer, and other tasks via touch, for which Explorer has been optimized, or via keyboard and mouse input. The desktop will only consume resources when it is launched, meaning that there are no performance or battery life implications for users who stick with the Metro interface for everything. The desktop is there if you want it. But one of Microsoft's stated goals with the Metro interface is to make it so you don't need to use the desktop as a fallback. This view captured correctly how we described and demonstrated the traditional desktop environment. As we will see, we had been having conversations with almost continuously from the first time we showed the product's user interface with the discussion highly polarized. There were those that thought in no uncertain terms that a tablet could not possibly have a desktop and there were those that thought a computer for real productivity could not possibly be without the desktop along with a mouse and keyboard. The views were so polarized that almost everyone concluded, regardless of which end you were on, there was a hard line implying only one of those could exist. This is the positioning Apple chose for the iPad, and given its success so, so, so far, it had the luxury of defining the tablet market. My view was that we could offer a different definition of tablets that just happened to play to our strengths and not fix on what Apple chose to make. It is fair to say this is one of the two most controversial decisions. This controversy will be discussed in depth in the next couple of sections on the platform and experience. Finally, the article turns to what would ultimately be the other most controversial decision. Would WOA PCs run existing x86 applications? To do so would require some form of virtualization and emulation. I'd answered this question at the initial briefing more than a year earlier and said this was not going to be the case. The article described this decision as follows. Microsoft is firm in its insistence that it will not support running, emulating, or porting existing x86 apps on the Windows on ARM desktop. Apps can only be downloaded and installed through the Windows Store, and only apps written to target the new WinRT APIs can be distributed through the store. However, the store will be able to distribute and update both ARM and x86 versions of the apps in the event that the app uses any code native to either architecture. Microsoft suggests that current Windows developers should be able to take significant bits of their existing code and wrap them in a Metro layer, but acknowledges that bringing over existing apps will require a bit of work. WinRT is clearly the wave of the future where Windows is concerned, but it'll be up to individual developers to decide how, when, and if to bring their programs over. One could hardly overstate the shock most had at WOA taking this position. Microsoft had sold the value of compatibility from the earliest days of the company, compatibility in all forms. Basic programs for one PC ran on another microcomputer. MS-DOS programs ran on, ran on any PC with MS-DOS. MS-DOS programs ran on Windows, even the oldest MS-DOS 1.0 programs. Windows applications for 16-bit Windows ran on all versions of 32-bit Windows from 1990 until Windows 11 shipped in late 2021, and still have several years of support left, nearly 35 years. 
Even in preparing this work, I routinely ran Microsoft Office 1.5 on 32-bit installations of Windows 10. This type of compatibility was not just for kicks or fun nostalgia demos. Many utilities or tools written by third parties that long ago stopped maintaining the software. In the rise of the enterprise corporate world, Windows continues to run line of business applications written ages ago that were no longer under active development, but were acquired for business. Quite simply, customers expected to run really old software just so they would not have to touch it. And we just blew all this up. To many, it seemed like we just abandoned the entire ecosystem just so we could build a tablet. I heard many times that it can't be called Windows if it doesn't run everything on Windows. Technology blogs were quick to point out the irony of some history. When Windows NT ran on new trips, chips from digital equipment, it was possible to translate x86 applications so they could run. Apple transitioned from Motorola to PowerPC and then to Intel, using forms of translation and virtualization each step. In fact, that example was repeatedly cited. So why not Microsoft? For sure, there were technical reasons. The ARM chips of the era lacked the horsepower to translate from x86 to ARM instructions, which would be required. Taking as an example, the Alpha chips that powered NT in the 1990s were far faster than Intel chips of the era and could use the extra processing power to translate. Apple was in a similar position as they were intentionally moving to more powerful chips. Still, this rationale was not compelling, and many thought we were just being stubborn in some way. Microsoft faced a far different situation. As rich, storied, and useful as the Windows application world was, it was stagnant and, frankly, legacy. No one was investing in it. What this implied was that any solution that included running these applications would need to continue to do so essentially forever, at least a decade or more. We knew this because we'd seen the amount of old software in the population of running PCs. In our world of compatibility, if customers were given an option to keep running, they would do so and would never accept a deadline to update or convert applications. We knew this because of two experiences. First, as discussed when we changed the user interface for Office 2007, we'd seen how customers viewed a compatibility mode. They insisted that we'd have it, and then in the next sentence, they would insist that they would turn it on from the start and never think about turning it off. Come the next release of Office, they would reassert the need for the new, now even older, compatibility mode. Second, about a decade earlier, Windows began the transition to move the PC ecosystem to much more reliable and secure 64-bit device drivers, that is code to support hardware and peripherals. More than 15 years of cajoling and even requiring OEM support for 64-bit drivers, and it was not until Windows 11 in 2022 that Microsoft finally completed this transition to 64-bits. We were so committed to compatibility that absent active mitigations taken to break existing functionality, even viruses and malware continued to run across versions of Windows. Recall the story and related outcry when we broke macros in Word or attachments in Outlook to stop the spread of a virus. Every security situation in Windows is also weighed against maintaining compatibility. Now that's customer commitment. That commitment was also a 16-ton weight holding us back on delivering a new value proposition for Windows in a modern era of computing as defined by smartphones and tablets. The counterexample many would be quick to point out today is how Apple migrated the Mac PC line from Intel to its own ARM chips, Apple Silicon, in 2020. They did so by utilizing an x86 program emulation translation layer and maintain compatibility with existing software. And they did it extraordinarily well. 
How did they do that? Apple had several distinct advantages that not only Microsoft lacked, but ran counter to Microsoft's long-term commitment to compatibility. Aside from the vertically integrated hardware and software that gave Apple much more control over the device and what code to run and how to implement this translation. First, Apple had been through two other trip transitions on Macintosh and regularly re-architected and removed older features and APIs from the operating system. Anyone who was part of Apple's transitions in the past as a developer knows that Apple has a rather heavy hand when it comes to deprecating, that's the word vendors use to signify operating system APIs that are no longer supported, and then removing features. This hygiene is part of what enables Mac to have a much more stable and less flaky experience as a broad general statement. Windows took the exact opposite approach, which is to introduce re-architected features while officially deprecating the old and almost never following that with removal. Essentially, strong encouragement to use new capabilities, but all the old remains and can be used. And so it was. As the Mac operating system evolved, the programs for it evolved to maintain a more modern approach to computing. Windows programs just kept running, becoming more out of step, less secure, and unaware of new cases for portability, cloud integration, or power management. Second, Apple planned on providing emulation or translation for a finite time. The emulation feature itself is something Apple introduces and then shortly thereafter deprecates and then removes in quick succession. When Apple transitioned to Intel chips in early 2006 with the MacBook Air, the Tiger version of the operating system, version 10.4, included technology enabling PowerPC software to run. By the Snow Leopard version of the operating system, 10.6, just four years later, that support was just no longer available. Now that's hardcore. As the largest third-party developer of software for Apple platforms, Microsoft lived these transitions in the Mac Office group. Often these were contentious. The Mac Office business unit had customers to serve, features to add, and many were in enterprises. Yet from Apple, they were being told, basically, to drop everything and begin transitioning. Even I would receive mail from Steve Jobs trying to influence the pace of change. Other third parties like Adobe were notoriously slow at meeting the demands of Apple. Yet every third party did, or they would simply fade away. Incredible. Third, Apple had a huge library of software and community of developers working on their new ecosystem to counter what was otherwise an ecosystem as moribund as the Windows Win32 ecosystem. The success of the iPhone created a new ecosystem of developers for Apple, the largest in the world for client-side computing. Apple had the advantage that comes from that, including deprecating support for older APIs. Mac developers were the subject of a great deal of evangelism to find ways to support the new iPhone and iPad platforms with their existing products. The similarities between APIs on devices was a significant advantage for Apple. Again, even the largest third parties were hardly immune from this. Adobe has a vast number of iPhone and iPad apps that it provides and are often demonstrated on stage by Apple. As we will see, the Mac Office product was quietly prioritizing their support for iPad even while the events here were taking place. What was our customer promise then? Why were we so rigid in supporting only the new Metro programs on WOA? The underlying operating system, Windows on ARM, aimed to deliver system security, reliability over time, performance, constant connectivity, and low power consumption. These were quite literally the weakest aspects of the classic x86 Windows PC, and not surprisingly, remain so today. Achieving these goals was an all-or-nothing proposition. 
Microsoft had historically avoided such hardcore trade-offs, favoring, favoring a caveat mTOR approach to variety, tweaking, and compatibility. That served the company remarkably well, to say the least. That approach had quite literally hit a wall. For Windows 8 and ARM, our goal was nothing short of ending the misery, mystery, and constant futzing that came from the first 25 years of the evolution of the Windows PC and Windows API. Competing with the iPad and Android tablets was a side effect of that, not the goal. The next sections will cover the goals and promises of the user experience and developer platform and fully answer the customer promise question. So then, where did the start menu go? 